This episode of Physical Attraction is sponsored by Podcorn. Some of you out there may be fellow podcasters, e.g. if you're in our Science Podcasts Facebook group. If so, you'll know the extraordinary amount of work that has to go into researching, writing, recording and editing your own show. If you're a small indie show like this one, getting sponsorships to make what you do even remotely sustainable can be tough. Podcorn are aiming to change that. It's a place where podcasters can go to pitch ad space on their shows to people who might want to work with them. One advantage to this is you do get to pick who you work with. I know other shows use dynamic insertion, which is done by their podcasting company, and therefore they end up filled with extremely ironic ads for people they've just criticised. This way I can filter out neoclassical economists, fossil fuel companies, any governments that I've criticised, and flat earthers, so it's all good. If you're a podcaster and you want to find out more, check out the Podcorn link in our show notes, and thanks for listening to this and helping me buy more caffeine. This week's episode is sponsored by the web and game development tutorials over on morganpage.tech. Morgan's web and game development courses can allow you to improve your coding skills and have fun at the same time. There are options to create survival games, tutorials on creating RPG card games, zombie horde type games, but even if you're not planning to code any games, you can use their site to generally brush up on your skills in coding languages like JavaScript, HTML and CSS, which form much of the backbone of the internet. There are some free courses available on morganpage.tech too, so you can get an example of what you'll be buying, but you can also get access to all of their courses for a single monthly subscription fee. What's more, you can use the coupon code PHYSICALATTRACTION to get 20% off any purchase when you go to the counter and let them know that we sent you. So if you're interested in learning a new skill or brushing up on your existing JavaScript, or indeed just coding up some games as a fun side project, that's morganpage.tech or the courses at morganpage.teachable.com. Thanks very much. On with the show. Hello, and welcome to this episode of Climate 201 from Physical Attraction, where we're going to conclude our series on energy efficiency. In the last few episodes, we've discussed the efficiency cornucopian view. The reality is that gains in energy efficiency can be very effective at preventing us from using and burning fossil fuels to produce energy, and they can save individuals, organisations and businesses money in the process. In this sense, it's an investment in saving the planet that does pay for itself. There are compelling arguments that the value of energy efficiency is largely underappreciated as something unsexy compared to the construction of new power generation. Yet it is crucial to achieving goals like decoupling economic growth from an ever greater energy and material footprint for our planet and all of the destructive ecological and environmental side effects that come with that. Yet obviously for something that appears to be on paper such a win-win investment, there are clearly significant barriers to actually implementing these new efficiency measures that are preventing all of the many existing designs and methods that have been created, many of which are more efficient than the alternatives, from actually being deployed. These barriers include a substantial amount of inertia in the given systems, a lack of awareness about the costs that can be saved and the environmental benefits that can be accrued, a lack of joined-up thinking when it comes to design and budgeting for energy bills, and the fact that the upfront capital costs and hassle prevent people from exploring these investments when it often seems more attractive and sexier to go for short-term solutions or visible solutions of new technology, to invest that money in the stock market or into expanding your business operations. Now these issues can be quite substantive, and when good energy efficiency policies aren't adopted, there's a huge element of lock-in to wasteful designs, and even entire wasteful infrastructures, which often come along with rapid, uncoordinated development. See, for example, the urban sprawl that many of us live in. 
We're going to discuss one more common objection to being too optimistic about the potential of energy efficiency to achieve real gains in decarbonisation. And this is an objection that you see sometimes on the left and the right and all through different realms of politics and thinking about this. And this is the the so-called rebound or Jevons effect, which has been a fascinating area of study for a while. But before I get onto that, I do want to make an important point that should have been made clear in this series. The whole attitude from Amory Lovins, the Rocky Mountain Institute, and others who really want to emphasise energy efficiency, it's really predicated on continuing to expand the economy, continuing to expand growth, continuing to do what we do at the moment, in other words, but in a more efficient way. You end up with solutions that politicians and business leaders like, those which show you that you can make or save money and save the planet at the same time. That's admirable, and it's a huge part of this appeal and ability to persuade. But at the same time, we have to look at the other side here. Natural resources may not run out any time particularly soon. Certainly there are enough fossil fuels left in the ground to heat up the planet to practically uninhabitable degrees if we ended up burning them all. But natural resources are going to be costlier and more environmentally destructive to extract as we continue to use them up. We can save ourselves a hell of a lot of bother by recycling the things that we make, and building things to last so that they don't end up in landfill, and generally changing our lifestyles to require less unnecessary material stuff. That's always going to be true. And the reality of the climate problem is a cumulative one. In other words, energy efficiency can help us cut emissions in the short term. It helps us to reduce the amount of oil, coal and natural gas that we burn to produce the same economic activity that we have today. But if a lot of that economic activity is unnecessary or wasteful, if it's not serving the purpose of making human lives better, or what we claim to prioritise in the societies that we run, then it can help an unsustainable system look more sustainable than it really is. And ultimately, if we want to stop emitting CO2 and therefore stop making the climate problem worse, the key thing we need to change is to stop getting our energy from fossil fuels. So Lovins is right to point out that energy efficiency has prevented more CO2 emissions so far than the deployment of renewables. But it is only the deployment of renewable sources of energy And not just the deployment of new renewable sources of energy, but the end of the consumption of fossil fuels that can ultimately get us out of this climate mess. Pretty much every year, with a few exceptions due to global recessions, the total amount of energy humanity extracts from fossil fuels has increased. In 1800, it was 97 terawatt hours. In 2019, it was 136,700 terawatt hours. It's nearly doubled globally since just 1982. It seems quite likely that our energy demand will continue to grow as a species, even as we learn to use that energy more efficiently. Only when all of that fossil-fueled energy production has switched to renewable sources of energy, or we've learned to bury billions of tonnes of CO2 underground, will we stop making the climate problem worse. Because the climate problem is a cumulative problem, so simply cutting emissions is not enough if you can't eliminate them entirely in the long run. Efficiency is of course important. For a start, it means that there's less energy generation infrastructure to replace. In lots of areas, transport, heating and industry, switching to electricity, which is much easier to generate renewably, is also key to more efficiency. But it cannot do the job alone. It is still key that we kick our addiction to fossil fuels for good and not just reduce the dose. The question of whether we can actually do so under the current economic and social systems we live under in time to prevent dangerous levels of warming, or some level of warming that you want to avoid, I think is the question of the 21st century, and that's going to be for another time. With all of that said then, let's get on to this other major objection, which is the so-called Jevons Paradox. Now, 
Jevons is really a fascinating figure. He He's basically the founding father in many ways of what we might call today the field of ecological economics. And at the same sort of time that philosophers like Adam Smith were talking about the free market and the invisible hand and the necessity of treating the world like a bunch of interacting homo economicus types who want to maximise their own self-interest and all this sort of thing, William Stanley Jevons was thinking about different issues. He was thinking about limits to economic growth. And the conclusions that he came to are quite remarkable. So I want to remind you, this happened in 1865. We're talking about the Victorian era in Britain. We're talking about the US Civil War just being over. Jevons wrote a book called The Coal Question. In this, he acknowledges how important coal had been to Britain's industrial development, writing, quote, Coal, in truth, stands not beside but entirely above all other commodities. It is the material energy of the country, the universal aid, the factor in everything we do. With coal, almost any feat is possible or easy. Without it, we are thrown back into the laborious poverty of early times. With such facts familiarly before us, it can be no matter of surprise that year by year we make larger drafts upon a material of such myriad qualities, of such miraculous powers. End quote. Yet despite writing the kind of pro-coal take that seems horribly outdated today, Jevons was something of an ecological economist. He was concerned that coal would run out, and that maybe building the entire prosperity of your society on a totally unsustainable model which relies on exploiting finite resources is a really bad idea. And suddenly he goes from a fossil fuel lobbyist to a Greenpeace activist. Jevons foresaw a sort of coal bubble, the massive economic activity and economic and population growth, all of which would depend on coal, would continue to grow. But this would cause the whole of society to overshoot its capacity to support itself. Coal production would get more and more difficult over time and eventually decline, leaving society, when coal demand was higher than ever, without its key source of energy. The result would be a disaster. Jevons felt that the people of that time, while they were still prosperous and rich off the back of fossil fuels, had a social responsibility to plan for the future and to find ways to avoid their dependence on fossil fuels. So yes, people have literally been banging on about the necessity of doing this for over 150 years, and our fossil fuel consumption has only increased in that time. And in the book, he actually goes through a lot of what might be considered renewable energy sources. He discusses wind power and argues that it could be more useful if the energy could be stored, say, by pumping water uphill. He talks about biofuel, at least wood, and notes that you couldn't get as much energy as you can from coal by burning all of the forests, a point we've made on this show before, because obviously fossil fuels are compressed, high-density energy sources that built up from thousands of years of forest cover and not just a single generation of trees. This, incidentally, is also the same obvious reason why planting forests alone is not going to be a solution to climate change. We're burning and releasing CO2 into the atmosphere from many generations of forest, not just one. And of course, we're deforesting the forests that we do have, so even just replacing them can only remove the CO2 that comes from the deforestation of them in the first place. In this sense, Jevons was massively ahead of his time, Albeit he wasn't thinking about climate change, but the fact that fossil fuels would run out, or at least, and equivalently, they would become uneconomical to extract. And I just want you to reflect on this for a minute. This is a guy, 1865, he's talking about whether we should use electricity or hydrogen, he's talking about whether we should use wind power, whether we could maybe try and use some sort of solar power, how we can store the energy that is intermittently generated. All of the issues that are nowadays the 
the main topics that are being studied in climate mitigation, all of the issues that you still hear people raising as concerns with trying to get off fossil fuels, they've been known about and they've been written about for 150 years. So what we're talking about, it's not actually that new. And this, this makes me think of a number of things. One is, of course, whenever someone comes up with these objections like, oh, the wind doesn't always blow and the sun doesn't always shine when it comes to renewables. I mean, Jevons thought of this 150 years ago. We have come up with some solutions in the intervening time. The second thing, of course, is what a wasted opportunity. If people had listened to him rather than pursuing uh, relentless growth at all costs, we wouldn't be in such a perilous state of potential overshoot of our carrying capacity of the planet right now. And it, it just goes to show, once again, the power of ideas. It really does. I mean, if Jevons's books and his perspective on reality had been as widely read and as widely supported as that of Adam Smith and the sort of neoclassical economic picture that, that he did, if, if that had in fact been the, the ferment of ideology that had come out of the 1970s or the 1980s and had been the, the way that we chose to redirect society at that point, I mean, there was a time when we could have done it, you know, when there was the oil crisis in the 1970s should have made clear to everyone that what Jevons was talking about, building your society's prosperity on the supply of these finite fossil fuels was obviously not the way to go. And so it just, and as I say, that was at a time in the 1970s when, you know, our carbon emissions were less than half of what they are today. Our energy consumption was less than half of what it is today. So it would have been far easier to act then. And uh, who knows where we could have been today if we just had the foresight of a guy from 1865. So that is my rant on William Stanley Jevons. And um, if, you, if you're interested, follow Tom Brown, the energy systems model on Twitter, who did some more research into the actual quite robust debate that was going on in the 1860s after I alerted him to this book. I have a copy of the cold question too, and if people want me to review that, I'll think of doing it. Um, but anyway, yeah, I'll go back on script now. So I mean, We've talked about Jevons. He was not the first person to worry that humanity was exceeding the carrying capacity of the Earth, you know. Loyal listeners will remember when we talked about Malthus as one of the Teotbauki specials, and his ideas that the population of the Earth would exceed its ability to produce food. Now, Jevons did make a lot of good points in his book. I mean, he actually predicted that British coal production might peak in 50 years, which was almost exactly correct, given that he was writing in 1865, and British coal production peaked in 1913. And Jevons was a little bit smarter than Malthus in that he acknowledged that technology would probably make it cost-competitive to extract more coal in the future. But he still felt that population growth and demand would necessarily outstrip supply. What Jevons missed, of course, was that we would learn to also exploit natural gas and oil, as well as the vast natural resources from other countries, which was not necessarily as clear in the age of steam when a lot of Britain's coal was still being domestically produced. But the contribution he is remembered for in this book is a rather grim prediction. Because one of his contradictions was to say, well, people are going to say that you can use these fuels more efficiently. But he thought that that's not actually going to solve the problem. He wrote this, quote, It is wholly a confusion of ideas to suppose that the economical use of fuel is equivalent to a diminished consumption. The very contrary is the truth. So what was he talking about here? Well, here's an example. The earliest practical steam engines, such as those designed by Thomas Newcomen, are inefficient. When James Watt came along with his new steam engine, it was a revolution in energy efficiency. It used up to 75% less fuel than previous models. But Jevons noted that developing an engine that used a quarter of the amount of coal to do the same work hadn't led to a reduced consumption of coal. Instead, it just meant that it was cheaper to use steam engines, which replaced water wheels in lots of applications. 
The demand for coal only increased as endless new applications for the cheap and efficient steam engines were found. This is the observation that was called Jevons's paradox, and it's pretty simple when all is said and done. If you make processes more energy efficient, it costs less to do them. Since it's less costly to do something, people then do the thing more, so consumption of energy goes up again. In the worst case scenario, you can imagine that maybe the whole thing backfires and you can end up consuming even more energy than you did in the first place. If we were all stuck using steam engines of the old style efficiency, then perhaps they would only ever have been used for a small amount of trains or something like that. But actually the fact that we've made internal combustion engines so much more efficient now means that everyone can drive around in a car and obviously the consumption of the primary fuels has gone up massively as a result. So there's a couple of things here. So that, that in terms of the, the, uh, the rebound effect or the Jevons's paradox, that's what we call the direct effect, where you use more resources. But there is a secondary indirect effect, which is that if you're saving money on your energy bills, that goes into some other purchase, growing the rest of the economy, say. And as long as economic growth is tied to ever-increasing uses for energy, as it has been for a long time, this growth to the economy increases energy consumption. So maybe you buy a more fuel-efficient car, and then you're using less oil in the car when you drive it around. But you use the money that you save on that car and that fuel on a plane trip to Paris instead. That might not end up decreasing your carbon emissions that much overall. Finally, if you can more efficiently use a resource that's proving a bottleneck for development, it unlocks all of that development. Consider a town that can't grow due to inadequate water supplies. If everyone learns ways to use 50% less water, it can grow twice as large. And this is a similar sort of thing that we might talk about when it comes to the tipping point for the point where many people can start to own cars with internal combustion engines. You know, but by making the internal combustion engine more efficient, you've made it an everyday thing that everyone will own at least one of. At the very least, even if there's no complete backfire, you will overestimate the amount of fuel you can save by not taking into the account that pe the fact that people will use more energy because of this rebound effect. Now this effect has been studied across a great range of different applications for energy across many different fields. Clearly it applied to coal in the 19th century, at least according to Jevons, but does it still apply today? Part of the problem is that it's not always easy to directly associate causation with these things particularly when it comes to the secondary indirect effect. Over time, things do tend to get more energy efficient. The economy has also grown rapidly, along with energy demand. Can we necessarily say that energy efficiency has caused the increased energy demand, but how much of it has it done? Or is it other factors, such as social, technological, population changes, and so on? And clearly, it doesn't apply to every different industry in equal ways. The more important the cost of energy is to the overall economics of a project, the more likely you are to have a rebound effect. A restaurant saving a few kilowatt hours on its electricity bills is unlikely to lead to the expansion of more restaurants, because it's a small percentage of the overall cost of doing business. But the same is not necessarily true of, for example, driving cars, or when we talked about steel production, and we said that the costs of steel production were around 25% from the initial coal that you needed to put into the steel. If you can use half as much coal, then you have quite a lot of money and maybe you'll start making more steel. Part of the issue here, of course, is that people are more likely to invest in energy efficiency measures where energy is a major part of the cost of doing business, and therefore where the rebound effect might be most important.
In the 1970s and the 1980s, as the oil crisis motivated the improvement in fuel standards that we discussed in the episode on transportation, economists observed that fuel-efficient cars, when they got more fuel-efficient, were generally driven for longer distances, as the drivers felt less of an incentive to save on fuel and avoid taking unnecessary trips. So clearly, when you're going to take an energy efficiency measure, there's going to be quite a big concern about this. I mean, how big is the rebound effect really? If it's enough to compensate for the energy savings that come from efficiency measures, then although you'll get an economic benefit from wasting less fuel, and therefore extracting more value from the same input of fuel, then you won't actually achieve your goal if your goal is to reduce the amount of fuel that you're using, and you could even be counterproductive on this point. On the other hand, if the rebound effect is comparatively small, then you can still reduce fuel use overall, and it's just a slight drawback that you need to take into your accounting, which means you'll be slightly less effective at reducing fuel use overall than you think you will be. The reality is that the size of this effect depends intimately on the economics of the situation and the type of resource that you're talking about. If your car was twice as cheap to fuel, would you actually drive twice as far? If you only use it for the same standard commuting journey anyway, perhaps not. Changes in behaviour obviously do saturate at some point as well. It might end up being dirt cheap to heat your house, but you're not going to intentionally roast yourself in 30 degrees Celsius temperatures all year round and keep the radiators running during the summer, even if it does get cheaper thanks to more efficient heating systems. In more developed economies, this is typically the case. People are already driving by ridiculous amounts and lighting up their entire built environment, so making these things more efficient doesn't necessarily cause us to use more of them, simply because there's no additional value in doing so. In many cases, in poorer countries, replacing lights that are expensive with LED lights might cause people to use more lights, because they're not lit up yet. A 2015 paper by the economist Gernot Wagner goes into this problem in much more detail, and finds that it's quite subtle. For a start, it can depend on how you actually improve the efficiency. Let's talk about cars for convenience. If someone invents a way tomorrow for cars to be twice as fuel efficient at no extra cost, that's one thing. You might expect the use of that resource to increase then. However, if the efficiency improvements come due to regulations that mandate that more efficient products have to be made, and they end up being more expensive as a result, then the economics are totally different. Because of these variations, we can only ever get a very rough estimate for the direct rebound effect. And the indirect rebound effect, as we've described, is much more difficult to estimate, because it's hard to disentangle economic growth effects from energy efficiency effects. In other words, it's not as if we can really track that people are directly spending the money they save on their electricity bills on a holiday instead. But Gernot Wagner's survey suggests that the rebound effect is probably modest, between 20 and 40% in most cases. In other words, rebound reduces the total effectiveness of your energy efficiency measures at reducing fuel consumption, but nowhere near enough in most cases to mean that you actually consume more fuel than you did in the first place. We find this in several places in the literature where studies are done for specific sectors. Stephen Nadel, for example, estimates that it's around 10% across sectors like passenger cars, space heating and cooling, and lighting. On the whole, in most situations, it's still a net benefit to invest in energy efficiency. The idea that there's this backfire and you end up consuming even more energy than you would have done otherwise is not that well-founded. That doesn't mean that there aren't some situations where this can happen and the debate is continuing to rage on in the academic literature. To give you an example, the Breakthrough Institute's article Approaching Backfire in 2015 lists several academic papers for case studies where the rebound effect appeared to be a lot higher than this. And then Jonathan Kumi rebuts their argument in a post entitled Everyone Makes Mistakes on the Rebound. However, I think generally people struggle to suggest that it's particularly common for energy efficiency to totally backfire like that. 
although it does make for a good headline because it seems like such a counterintuitive Freakonomics type result. The consensus then is that rebound shouldn't be ignored because it reduces the effectiveness of efficiency measures to reduce fuel consumption, but it certainly doesn't reverse them. And I suppose in some ways people might say that the indirect effect is actually the point. I mean, you're saying that you want to save money and save the planet, well, the saving money part of it could easily be invested in stuff that would help save the planet or displace fossil fuels. If you are worried about the rebound effect, though, you can always take some steps to mitigate it. For example, if you're making cars more energy efficient, you can also increase fuel taxes at the same time, so that the cost of driving a mile remains the same, preferably using those fuel taxes for something else environmentally sound. Alternatively, you can choose to focus on pollution rather than just raw energy consumption. If you use the energy that's saved by making processes more efficient to capture CO2 and bury it, then the overall effect will still be a reduction in CO2 emissions. If you use the money that's saved on replacing fossil fuels, then you're reducing pollution. Finally, I think it's worth saying that although the rebound effect might be a concern, it does seem insane to actually follow that through for its full alternative. You know, It seems crazy to hamstring yourself by not investing in energy efficiency, just because you assume that people's behaviours will endlessly demand more and more energy, and all of that energy has to be produced with fossil fuels. We expect that neither of these are necessarily true. Should we really run around saying that we shouldn't bother developing ultra-efficient, cheap technologies for essential services like lighting or cooking in poorer countries? Going to people living in grinding poverty and saying, well, we want you to use inefficient light bulbs because then it will be 10% of your budget and you'll only have one. Or, you know, we want you to use inefficient technology because we're worried that if you save money on your electricity bills, you might spend it on something else. What a ridiculous counterproductive attitude that would be. Plus, you would imagine that eventually, if poorer countries do catch up to wealthier nations in terms of their use of lighting, then we'd want them to be using the most efficient lights anyway. People aren't investing in light bulbs because it's cheap, they're doing so because it's dark. If we were all still using Watt's steam engine, perhaps we would still be burning fewer fossil fuels than we are today, but our quality of life would also be much, much worse. Ultimately, it comes down to this. Where do we want to get to? There are certain services that energy can perform for us, transporting us and the things we like around the place, manufacturing us and the things that we use, keeping us and our food at a decent temperature. This is what we need energy for. Lighting the darkness, letting us use electronic gadgets. You can argue about how much of this we should be doing in the future, and how much energy each person should use. And you can argue, as I'd completely agree, that our use of energy at present is horribly unfairly distributed. And the negative impacts of how we use energy at the moment are again horribly unfairly distributed when you see who benefits the most from the energy consumption that we have as a species. Do we want 9 billion people in the future, or however many there are, to be able to enjoy all of the benefits that harnessing energy can provide? Of course we do. Your choices are then to produce more energy in ways that don't harm the environment as much, or to find ways to get more benefits from a small amount of energy. We have to do both, and ignoring the immense value of efficiency, ways of getting the same benefit from less energy, is clearly wrong. And in a world where we are finally trying to make the transition from fossil fuels away from fossil fuels and towards renewable energy, the job will be made easier if we're not wasting so much energy to begin with. It's pretty clear now that there's more than enough solar energy, if only we could harness and distribute it properly, falling on the world's deserts that the available energy is not the actual constraint for our quality of life as a species at all. But the job certainly becomes a lot easier if in the future you can do similar things as you can do today with a tiny fraction of the energy. 
Why have I devoted so much time to the Jevons paradox, then? I think it's partly because the political and academic debates surrounding this are really just a microcosm, an aspect, and part of a much broader debate. Sadly, people do often have different agendas when it comes to discussing these issues. You might agree or disagree with them, depending on your own interpretations of the facts, your own political inclination, etc. I have my views, which you can probably all guess when I'm not telling you them directly. But you can see how these relatively arcane arguments over things like the rebound effect can end up being deployed as part of a political agenda. Let's say you're an efficiency cornucopian like Amory Lovins. You want to persuade business people, financiers and sceptical politicians who don't really care about the environment that fixing climate change can be profitable and good PR for them as well. And so you focus on the value of energy efficiency as an investment. The pitch he wants to make is that you can essentially solve at least the American contribution to climate change just with this. The book Reinventing Fire talks about, quote, a 2.6-fold bigger US economy by 2050 with no oil, coal or nuclear energy, a third less natural gas, a $5 trillion net savings, 82-86% to lower carbon emissions, and no new inventions, solely through profit-motivated business activity. If that's the case you're making, then obviously you can't talk about the rebound effect too much, because it slightly spoils your picture. Indeed, the Breakthrough Institute, on the other side of the debate, wrote an article, Amory Lovins' Efficiency Fantasy, directly attacking the book that has formed the cornerstone of the efficiency cornucopian view that we've laid out over the last few episodes, and arguing that the size of the rebound effect is consistently underestimated. You might ask why they do that. Well, some people are going to argue that these guys are actually they're favouring more funding for research and development into fundamental technologies. Their view is that you need more research and development into fundamental technologies, and that we don't have all of the solutions in front of us now whether it's next-generation renewables, energy storage, new nuclear, carbon dioxide removal, etc. So in that sense, actually, a solution that says you can solve the problem simply through energy efficiency alone is not necessarily the best thing for that organisation. You can see how the efficiency cornucopian attitude is also going to run into conflict with other people's politics. The focus on economic growth, for example. There's definitely a group of people whose argument is that capitalism and a system of limitless economic growth is incompatible with fixing climate change and saving the environment, and that we have to switch to a new system. Regardless of how you feel about that, you can see why the have-your-cake-and-eat-it philosophy of reinventing fire, which tells policymakers they can continue to focus on economic growth if they make a few efficiency tweaks around the edges, even though what Lovins is really calling for is a lot of quite radical changes. You can see why, from that perspective, this idea that you can just tweak the edges and make them more efficient is, is not attractive. From this point of view, all that energy efficiency is going to do is going to allow us to plunder the planet in other ways and live unsustainably for slightly less money. So they will be incentivized to emphasise the rebound effect. Aha, greedy capitalists will eternally consume more energy, and we can't have sustainable growth in the system. The rebound effect proves it. For my part, I agree that Lovins' argument is slightly overblown and exaggerated, and that it's going to be a lot more difficult than he suggests to actually get this level of energy efficiency adopted. That's why, alongside introducing the argument, I've also been introducing the counterpoints at the same time. At the same time, I think that energy efficiency is a brilliant investment and it's clearly underutilised. And the general idea that we can and should be far less wasteful than we are is patently true, and something everyone from all walks of political life should agree on. I can see why he takes this extreme position when there are a lot of people who don't talk about energy efficiency enough. And I can also see why someone who would call themselves a pragmatist wants solutions that they can actually sell to businesses and right-wing or at least centrist politicians as a win-win option. Isn't energy-efficient growth a lot better than inefficient growth, since people are going to be pushing for growth anyway? 
Once you can persuade people that they'll save money by fixing the environment, a great many more people will do it. On the other hand, if they're convinced that it will cost them money, then many of them will shirk the responsibility, palming it off onto future generations, other countries, other companies, saying, I'll be dead by the time any of this is a problem, or hoping to retire to some bunker in New Zealand if the shit hits the fan. We can't live with that. One thing that has been notable uh, that I'd like to mention before we finish is that the Rocky Mountain Institute and Lubbins have also worked out a reinventing fire plan for China. I think in a lot of ways that might be more exciting because there are several differences between China and the West that arguably means his push for more energy efficiency could be even more effective there at reducing emissions. Indeed, in the time since I wrote this script, China has now announced that it wants to go to net zero by 2060, and you imagine that energy efficiency would have to be a big part of that. But at the moment, China is still building a lot of physical infrastructure, and therefore a lot of these key decision points, whether to do things in an energy efficient way or whether to scramble towards building them as quickly as possible, these are still being taken now. And that's the moment of maximum leverage for doing things efficiently, because retrofitting things, particularly infrastructure you just built, is going to be more expensive and difficult by comparison. And secondly, whatever else you want to say about the Chinese government, you know, it's still willing to engage in big stimulus projects to back the construction of industry and physical infrastructure and to have centralised plans for economic growth, where a lot of the resources involved are commanded by the state. Without getting into the age-old debate about whether state-led centralised planning or free markets are more efficient at allocating capital and what we should be allocating capital to do in the first place, it's clear that you have to persuade fewer people that energy efficiency is a good investment to get some serious capital allocated there. Indeed, China is on a pace to soon outspend the US when it comes to energy efficiency investments, although both are still lagging behind Europe, which goes to show what politics and policies can do for you. These are difficult debates, and difficult questions with no easy, simple and straightforward answers, and it's part of the complexity of the problem that's helped lead to gridlock. At this stage, my answer is simple. We really don't have time to waste on all these silly internecine squabbles. Those of us who are interested in addressing the problem of climate change cannot spend our time arguing about whether we're on the People's Front of Judea or the Judean People's Front anymore. We have the best chance of reducing our emissions and saving ourselves from climate change if we have as many different technologies and approaches available as possible. We need renewables, we need storage, we need electrification, we need hydrogen, we need energy efficiency, we need nuclear, we need carbon dioxide removal, we need behavioural changes as well, we need societal changes too. We need to change our priorities so that we're consuming less energy in the first place. We need to recycle so that we're more sustainable in the material resources that we create. And these things, most of the time, they aren't actually competing with each other at all. Each of them makes the others easier to deploy. Each of them has their own role in a system that's got off fossil fuels. Lower overall energy demand makes switching away from fossil fuels easier. Nuclear helps us integrate renewables onto the grid. Removing CO2 gives us an option for sectors that are too expensive to decarbonise in other ways. Changing our behaviours, such as not wasting energy and food, reduces emissions and has all kinds of other positive effects as well. We need to invest money, time, energy, personnel in all of these things to realistically have a chance, because they all have their individual roles to play. And if it turns out that one of them is more useful than the others, easier or quicker or less costly to deploy, history tells us that it'll probably win the race. So thanks for listening to this series exploring energy efficiency and its role as a solution to climate change in more depth. As I say, I've only really scratched the surface of what is a fascinating topic that really reaches into pretty much every way we use energy, which, let's face it, is pretty much everything that we do as humans, from the energy your speakers or headphones are using to play this recording to 
the energy that your brain is using to process the words that I'm saying. There are certainly limits to what energy efficiency can accomplish, and large barriers in the way of implementing these best practices, not least short-sightedness and a lack of awareness. So I don't take quite as rosy a view as the real cornucopians, who I cited so often in this series, but it is going to be a key weapon if we have any hope of living sustainably together on this planet. And of course, in this universe. From a physicist's perspective, the second law of thermodynamics looms large over all of this. (laughs) Remember, if your theory contradicts the second law, you are sunk and there's no hope for you. That's true of economic and political theories as well as physical ones. Every time energy is transferred, some of it is dissipated, wasted as high-entropy heat, never to be recovered, impossible to capture and use. The universe is constantly in an endless process of unravelling towards the final state that we know it will have, this high-entropy soup. And in the universe, there's only so much useful work that can ever be done. This, of course, represents the ultimate limit to everything, to all thought, all feeling, all motion, all sound and fury, all of anything that can be described, all of anything that can be. There is only so much energy that we can extract from the universe and harness for our own purposes, until it's all over, the party's finished, and we face down an eternity of nothingness. Better make the most of it, then. Thank you for listening to this Climate 201 episode from Physical Attraction. Remember, you can find us on the web at physicspodcast.com. There you'll find the contact form, any comments, questions, concerns. I love hearing from you. I try and respond to as many emails that I get. So please get on that and chat to me. You can, of course, follow us on Twitter at PhysicsPod, on Facebook, Physical Attraction. You can support the show financially. There's a PayPal link on physicspodcast.com. The Patreon, you'll get loads of episodes early. Thank you if you are listening to this now via the Patreon, having subscribed early. You're probably several months ahead of the game. There's some of the advantages you can get by subscribing to the Patreon, alongside some bonus episodes that no one else can hear. Of course, the most important thing you can do to help us out is to tell other people who might be interested, who might find these resources useful, to please listen to the show, uh, talk about us on social media, rate and review, all that stuff. You know the game by now. Help out your local independent content creator. Our theme music is by Melody Sheep. They have a Patreon as well, so please check them out if you're interested in more sciencey music. Until next time then, please, please do take care.